This is chapter 116 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we show our love for our hometown with a handful of books set in the city so nice they named it twice. If you've ever seen Rosemary's Baby or the short-lived TV show 666 Park Avenue, then you're already familiar with the creepy old Manhattan apartment building is also home to Satan, demons, ghosts, we're neighbors, fill-in-the-blank genre. Author Riley Sager takes the whole idea to a new level with his new horror-slash-thriller, Lock Every Door. He spoke to our Pat Farnack about it. One reviewer called Lock Every Door a kind of real estate thriller, and I love that because it really is all about a fictional, strange old building called the Bartholomew in Manhattan. And it really is a character in your story, isn't it? Oh, it totally is, yes. I knew that I wanted to have this very intriguing glamorous but also sinister building at the center of the story and i knew it had to be basically the second main character there are other people within it who are you know doing their thing but the building itself is like the villain i think and it's roughly based on the dakota it's it's totally true i've been obsessed with the dakota i think since i saw the movie rosemary's baby when i was 14 and so like i just i'm fascinated by the dakota and so when i was coming up with the how am I going to build, quote-unquote, this building? Um, I, I definitely had the Dakota in mind, and I, I spent an afternoon not trying to get inside because I knew better, <laughs> but just sort of roaming the exterior and, you know, seeing, like, the goings-on around the outside of the building, who's going in, who's going out, like, how it looks from the park, things like that. And the gargoyles, yes. one of the gargoyles uh, on the very top of the building of the Bartholomew is almost a minor character himself. Yes, that was also fun because I, I knew that the, the main character, Jules, she's very lonely. She doesn't have many people in her life. She has a tragic past. And I wanted to give her a friend <laughs> sort of <laughs> at, on, on the top of that building, even though it's just a gargoyle. But I also wanted that friend to maybe not be trustworthy, just like everyone who lives in that building. Jules becomes an apartment sitter at uh, the Bartholomew. And even though she makes so many bad choices and you're you're thinking, oh, Jules, please. It's terrifying what can happen when you don't have a family and you don't really have anybody looking out for you. Jules' situation sort of began as just an author. I was trying to think what would keep her in that building when things start to get too weird. Because I knew that readers would be saying, Jules, get out of there. So I, I really had to make her situation desperate enough that she would stay there. And, you know, for her, it's she doesn't have family to help. And she doesn't have much money at all. She lost her job. She lost her boyfriend. She lost her apartment. And so this idea of not having any kind of lifeline really... I kind of latched onto that and made that a key part of Jules' character. Like, she's not stupid, but she just has been the victim of unfortunate circumstances. And that's, that makes it more believable when she is given these opportunities that seem to be too good to be true. You can understand how you wouldn't look at a life preserver very closely. Oh, exactly. Yeah, she's being offered $12,000 to live in this luxury apartment for three months, and I think many people would just say, yes, sign me up. Her backstory about her family and she has a missing sister, 
That was just the right touch, I thought, to make the story even more haunting. Yeah, I think it's always interesting to give characters, I mean, in in my books, they tend to be tragic backstories, but (laughs) um, to to give them a, a history, because that past, just like in real life, it informs what they do in the present because we all make decisions based on what happened to us in the past. And so Jules does very much the same thing. I was ready for more of a horror type of resolution, like in The Shining maybe. <laughs> but but uh, without giving anything away, uh, it was even more horrifying a conclusion. What inspired uh, the story? Oh, I was, I was totally inspired by Rosemary's Baby. The plot's may or may not be different, um, but I mean, I love the idea of this this young woman who's innocent going into this building and, you know, sort of starting this new life in this new apartment. And just there are people in that building who some of them aren't friendly. Many of them are. Most of them can't be trusted. And so I really liked the idea of not prey, perhaps, but, but <laughs> an, an innocent in a building that's filled with people who aren't innocent and sort of how does she get out of that situation? And so that was the impetus right there was Rosemary's Baby. And I kind of wanted to write my version of that type of story. Have you been thinking of any other platforms uh, for your story, big or small screen for Lock Every Door? Um. I've been lucky in that so far all three of my books have been optioned for film or television, including Lock Every Door, but I honestly don't think I can say anything else about that. Well, that's a good problem to have. It's it's, it's a wonderful problem, but I, I don't think it's like officially announced yet, so I'm not sure how much I can say or how much I can't say, so I tend to just err on the side of caution and be like, I can't talk about it. Well, talk about it to us when you do know, all right? Uh, Riley Sager is is hard at work on on another book. I I tend to, um, I get inspired by, I try to do, like, take scary movies and take them maybe out of the horror genre and more into, like, the psychological thriller genre. Hmm. And so um, my my next inspiration for my next book is, is the Amityville Horror. Oh, and in this area, too. <laughs> we love that. Yes. Yes. So someone on Instagram lives right across the canal from the house. And she invited me to. She's like, oh, you can come over and I'll show you the outside of the house. I'm like, I wow. might take you up on that. Well, thank you so much for talking to us about it. We've been speaking with Riley Sager, author of Lock Every Door. I'm pretty sure there isn't anyone out there who hasn't dreamed about quitting their day job in favor of doing something more rewarding or fulfilling or maybe just less stressful. That's exactly what Allegra Cobb, the protagonist of Breathe In, Cash Out, dreams of doing, but she's got a bunch of hoops to jump through before she gets to her happily ever after. I spoke with author Madeline Henry about her witty and entertaining debut. Your main character is named Allegra, which means happy, but she's not so happy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about her story? Sure. So Allegra is an investment banker who really wants to be a yogi. And so in my book, Breathe In, Cash Out, you see her try and reconcile these two worlds, which are polar opposites, yoga versus finance. So she's not having a good time, but she's trying her best. (laughs) So like Allegra, you've worked in finance. Yes. 
How true to life are some of these crazy anecdotes in your book? Yeah, so this is, it's a work of fiction, and none of these people exist. The bank where it takes place, Anderson Shaw, is not real. However, it is an authentic investment banking experience in the same way that the Devil Wears Prada is an authentic experience of someone who worked as an assistant in a high fashion magazine. And the Nanny Diaries is an authentic experience of someone who worked as a nanny for a wealthy family in New York City. So several of the anecdotes in the book are closely resembling experiences that I observed or heard about while I was working in finance. And that's why it feels so real. (laughs) So so that all being said, it seems like an endless stream of misery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know what's funny is that the misery is a source of bonding for the banking community. So people get together and they talk about how much they hate their lives and that's just part of the culture and people who love the job still love to complain about it. It's just part of the banking culture. And that does come across in your book with with the characters that Allegra works with, with her co-workers, with her select pod that she has. Exactly. Yes. They play a game called Whose Life Sucks the Most, which they (laughs) actually try to win. So, (laughs) so and and lucky for us with, you know, this topic and this everybody hates their life type of thing. You have a sense of humor and that really comes through (laughs) and that comes through on the page and a little bit of a potty mouth. And that's fun, too. (laughs) So, and then you have some experience in humor writing. Uh, I do, yes. I was a humor writer in college, and my most popular article for the Yale Record uh, was somebody writing firsthand um, an account of a sexual experience, but it becomes clear throughout their uh, the course of the article that they are a virgin and they've been looking everything up. So it's very definitional and people love that piece. <laughs> what are the the funnier relationships in this book? I love the pretzel cart guy. Oh, amazing. I'm actually wearing a pretzel bracelet. So I am in support of pretzels. Yes. So um, in the book, there is a man who runs a pretzel cart across the street from Anderson Shaw, who hates everyone who works there and yet serves them every single day and does not hide his hatred for these people. So it's very fun. (laughs) And why don't we switch gears and talk about the yoga? Because there's a, you know, this book is about yoga as much as it is about finance. Yeah. And I took a a peek at your Instagram page. Those are some serious posts, (laughs) poses you've got going on. Yeah, it's so funny because um, I try to be very uh, good at these poses. And yet that's such an anti-yoga attitude to try to achieve and to try and be excellent. But yes, I have. I've spent a lot of time working to do advanced asana. Yeah. And you share that in common with Allegra. I do. Yeah. So I was very lucky that I had so much personal experience to put into this book. And part of why I find it so funny is because yoga and finance are so uh, dissimilar. So in at the junior level in finance, the body is not valued at all. You're basically a productivity machine and how much PowerPoint can you do in a night is your status quo. Uh, but in yoga, you do value the body. And so that's one point of tension. And then another point of tension is yoga really values calm and inner peace. And in the finance world, especially in New York City, it's all about mania. And it's all about how much can you do today for me? And even if the work isn't valuable, um, quantity tends to matter more than quality. So um, it's really hard for Allegra to try and do both. 
So were you in your real life as torn as Allegra is between finance and and yoga? Yeah. So um, my personal story is I worked at Goldman Sachs in investment banking, and uh, then I moved on to investing. And I had no free time while I was an investment banker. Um, There are just crazy stories of neglect of my personal apartment, but that's for another time. And I did not discover yoga until after I left banking because of that. So I'm different from Allegra in that I never had to try and reconcile these two worlds at the same time. I think what's interesting is with with Allegra and you've lived in real life, this idea of like switching career tracks. If there are people out there who want to make that switch, even if it's something not as crazy as from finance to to being a yogi. Right. (laughs) What sort of advice would you give them? Um, So... I can only speak from personal experience in that uh, I would advise people do what they want to do every single day and to make time for it because I think that um, there's a in terms of yoga and writing, there's a lot of practice and there's a lot of bad writing before you make any progress. And so if you're looking to really make a career out of your hobby or out of your passion or out of your art, you need to invest a lot of time. Um, so make sure you do it every day and be prepared for long-term results, not short-term results. Um, and look for little gains along the way. So if you want to be a writer, uh, don't wait until a book deal to be happy. Be happy with a great scene. And then if you're happy with those little steps along the way, then you'll stick with it for long enough to get the great result. I'm guessing that's how you kept yourself encouraged <laughs> along the way. Yeah, I've actually used the metaphor uh, spooning yourself out of prison. So if you're spooning a tunnel, you can only spoon uh, so much dirt a day and you just have to stay focused on um, the long term. So, By the way, I love this cover. Oh, thank you so much. It's so fun. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very pink and red and uh, it totally captures the essence of the book, which is combining finance and yoga. So. And is that scorpion pose? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a version of it. It's a forearm stand. So uh, scorpion is when you put your feet on your head and this is close, but not quite. <laughs> and for when people finally pick up the book, they'll know why I asked that because <laughs> that pose in particular plays a pivotal role. In the book and in Allegra's Awakening, I guess we should say. Absolutely. Yeah. Surprises. (laughs) So do you have other books in you? Uh, Absolutely. I actually uh, just sold my second book to Atria at Simon & Schuster, and that's a love story. Uh, Very excited about that. And the way I think about it, actually, is um, in yoga, there is a concept of the head versus the heart. And uh, the head is ego, it's selfish, it's fear, and the heart is generous, it's intuition, and yoga tries to advocate for heart living. And so the way I view these two books is Breathe In, Cash Out is a very head novel in that it takes place entirely in Allegra's head. It's in this world, um, which is really fear-driven in finance and in terms of people want to have more and they're constantly comparing and status matters. Um, But this love story I'm really excited about because I feel it's very visceral and um, it celebrates noble characters and uh, true love. So um, I'd compare it to um, The Light We Lost and uh, with some philosophy from The Secret or The Alchemist. So it's, uh, it's very special to me and I'm really excited to share both. All right. We look forward to that. In the meantime, you can pick up Breathing, Cash Out. Madeline Henry, thank you for coming by and talking to us. Thank you so much for being here. 
It's often said that revenge is a dish best served cold. It's actually unclear where that saying originated, but the idea is that revenge is more satisfying if it's enacted unexpectedly. And that's how things unfold, at least in the start, of Pretty Revenge, this week's beach read and the new suspense novel from Emily Liebert. Pretty Revenge is about two women who had an incident 18 years ago. One was 12 years old and one was 17 years old at the time. And the incident that happened made it so that the 12-year-old felt the 17-year-old set her life on a bad course and ruined her life. And nearly two decades later, the 12-year-old, Kerry, sees the 17-year-old Jordana on television, and she's now living the high life in Manhattan. She's a socialite. She owns her own wedding concierge business, and she's married to a rich, gorgeous man. And something inside Carrie boils up, and she decides to leave her current boyfriend, leave her life, uproot everything, move to New York, and apply for a job working for Jordana with the intent of seeking revenge on Jordana and ruining her life. I can't help but be struck that if it weren't for that incident that you're alluding to, these two girls with the not-so-great childhoods that they had might have ended up being best friends. They may have ended up being best friends. And when Carrie goes to work for Jordana and changes her name to Olivia, um, I believe that they do form a sort of a friendship. And if Carrie wasn't trying to seek vengeance, they may have developed into a friendship even as adults. And I think we should point out we're not giving too much away when we say that Jordana doesn't know who she is when she comes in. Right. No, I mean, you know that from the start. It's been almost 20 years. People change a lot in 20 years. And um, in the book, I make obvious that Carrie has done a few things to herself to change her appearance. And then before she goes to work for her, undergoes a big makeover. Hence, pretty revenge. Hence, pretty (laughs) revenge. So early on in the book, uh, Carrie shares something that her nana used to say to her all the time, that senseless revenge will whip its neck and snap you on the bottom. Does that mean that revenge can be a good thing? No. (laughs) (laughs) It means that if you try to get revenge on someone else, that it'll come back to you. It means karma is a buh. (laughs) (laughs) Am I allowed to say that here? Yeah, it's it's podcast. Karma's cool. a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I ask that is because senseless revenge makes you think that there might be a type of revenge that you won't get kicked in the butt for. Oh, no. No, I would say all revenge you'll get kicked in the butt for, but especially senseless revenge because it's like, why are you wasting your time on that? It's going to come back to bite you. It's not necessary. Yeah. And it's obvious that Carrie puts a lot of work into her plotting and into her scheming and what she wants to do. She sure does. She has to. It's like a second job for her. Exactly. It's a first job, I think. Yeah. Have you ever enacted revenge on someone or wanted to or dreamt of doing it? All day, every day. No, I'm just (laughs) kidding. I don't think I have ever exacted revenge on anyone and A few people have asked me, is this something you're looking to do or you've thought about? No, not necessarily. But what I will say is that I'm someone who holds a garage. (laughs) So I can certainly relate 
to the impulse to want to seek revenge on someone. And I'm very sure that if anyone ever messed with my kids, there would be some serious revenge involved. Hasn't happened yet, thank God. Yeah, thank God for them. I'd be a little worried. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so, you know, I, I've spoken to an author who actually argues that holding a grudge is a good thing. Wow. So you might be happy to hear that. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear <laughs> that. I feel that most people would say you shouldn't hold a grudge because it, it taints, you know, the way you lead your own life. But um, and I'm really happy to hear that. <laughs> I can't also help but think like the way she goes about it. There, I don't want to say diabolical because it, it, it really doesn't have that sense. But, you know, you also start to see why Jordana acted in the way she is. And you end up with two sympathetic characters. It was really important to me not to make this a book where there were unreliable narrators or everything could be blamed on someone just being a psychopath or crazy. I wanted these to be real authentic people Kerry, who had a real authentic grudge against someone and had to do this. And even though she's not a horrible person, as funny as that may sound, this is something she had to do to right the wrong that had happened to her. And then you also see it from Jordana's perspective, who you would think from what she did would be a bad person, but you see how it happened and you see that maybe it wasn't intentional or even if it was, she was just in such a bad place in her life. So you do, I think, or at least hope, end up seeing that there's a vulnerability in both of them and end up empathizing or sympathizing with at least one or the other. There also seems to be this parallel thread that happiness is a choice. Yeah, I really wanted to put that out there because I think to some extent it is true. Certainly there are tragic things that can happen to people. And in that case, maybe happiness isn't just a choice. But I do believe in life that people have to choose and want to be happy, that you can't just expect good things to come from you. The goodness and happiness that you put out there is going to come back to you. Do you relate more to Carrie or Jadana? <laughs> That's a tough one. I am going to say... I relate more to Jordana just because I grew up in Manhattan and I grew up around a lot of people like Jordana or maybe not like Jordana, but like the people that Jordana associates with. Um, and I grew up on the Upper East Side. So um, and I'm also ambitious and um, sort of an entrepreneur in my own way as an author. So, yeah, I, I associate more to, with Jordana, but not to her dark past. I don't have right. that dark past, and fortunately. It's, it, it's interesting, too, because, you know, it's kind of a little tongue-in-cheek the way she treats that part of society. She's always wanted to be a part of it, but when she's in it, you know, it's the little snide comments. Or yeah, just I mean, the, I think know, that's the, the push and pull. You want, 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 want something. And then when you get there, you realize it's not all it was cracked up to be. And I think at one point in the book, to quote myself, <laughs> she says something to the effect of, you know, like, I finally got to the top and it's cold up here. I'm alone. And I think that that really says something. I've read that this is your first stab at 
a psychological suspense story. Why did you make the switch? It is. Um, I've written six books. My first book, Facebook Fairy Tales, was narrative nonfiction. My next four were women's fiction novels. And I loved writing women's fiction, but I came to a point where I'd written four women's fiction books. And I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to do something edgier, which is more congruent with my personality. (laughs) And I... uh, I had been reading a lot of psychological suspense and a lot of psychological thrillers, and I loved them, and I thought I would love to try my hand at this, and I did. And part of doing that was leaving Penguin Random House, which was my former publisher, and moving over to Simon & Schuster. So now that you've done it, are you going to stick in it? A little while? I am sticking with it. I've already written the next novel that will come out in summer 2020, and that is also psychological suspense. So I'm sticking to it for now. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. But before I let you go, I want to talk to you about your partnership with KB Shimmer. Yes. So you've teamed up with them to create two different nail polishes. Uh, one is named after Carrie. One's named after Jordana. And I understand why Carrie is red. But why is Jordana that sparkly silver? So I have teamed up with KB Shimmer. With each of my novels, I've done a collaboration with a brand, whether it's lip glosses or nail polishes. And it's a way for me to promote the book beyond just the book world to people. So, of course, Carrie is red for revenge. And we wanted to give Jordana a sort of graceful sophisticated, shimmery silver because she's in the wedding industry and we thought it was a little more demure. I love them both. Thank you. I do too. <laughs> and where, when did you first hit upon this idea of, you know, partnering with these beauty brands in order to get your name and your books out there? So when I wrote my first book, Facebook Fairy Tales, it was a really easy sell to get publicity because it was about Facebook, which was just exploding at the time. And it's sort of a chicken soup for the soul kind of book. So a lot of there was a lot of interest around it. And I got on a lot of television shows, Today Show and Rachel Ray and all these things. And I knew that when I wrote my second book, which was my first novel, that it was going to be more of an uphill battle to get that kind of exposure being for all intents and purposes, a debut author for the second time. And so I knew that I had to do something clever to make myself stand out. And for that book, I partnered with Zoya, and they did a nail polish collection for the book. And I've never done nail polish since then again, but I came back to it with this book because it was so successful with You Knew Me When. And it's been just a way I can separate myself from the pack over the years, and it's it's been really successful for me. I love that your debut women's fiction was nail polish, and now your debut psychological suspense book is nail polish. So that means when you get I love ready, that you recognize that. <laughs> ready to change genres again, we can expect another nail polish. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking about Pretty Revenge, Emily Liebert. Thank you for coming in and talking to us about it. Thank you so much for having me. Whether you're planning to visit New York City or a Big Apple native, 100 Things to Do in New York City Before You Die, the second edition, is full of cool things to see and do in the city that are off the beaten path. Author Evelyn Cantor recently stopped by our studios and chatted with our Marla Diamond about it. 
How did you limit it to 100 things? That was the hardest part because the book has to be both for New Yorkers who think they know everything, first-time visitors who sometimes think they know everything, and everybody in between. So yes, you have to go to the Statue of Liberty uh, especially now that the new museum has opened, you have to go to the 9-11 Memorial Plaza and to the museum. That's whether you live here full-time, born here like me, or first-time visitor. After that, there are so many wonderful things that limiting it to 100 things is pretty difficult. Well, it's great that you did that because the city can seem quite overwhelming, even to New Yorkers who wonder, what can we do today? Well, one of the things I suggest is eating your way around the world on the number seven train. Right. And you can pick one subway stop each weekend and visit a different culture. And these are all family-owned restaurants. There are some chains, but, but these are mostly small family restaurants. So one stop is the Greek community. One stop is the Filipino community. One stop is the uh, Colombian community mm-hmm. and, and Peruvian. So you'll just eat yourself away around the world between Times Square and the last stop, which is Flushing Main Street. So I guess you like to eat. You begin the book with food suggestions. New York is known for a lot of things. Food is one of them. Everybody loves food. So let's let's start. Uh, One of your suggestions is the food halls. They seem to be popping up on every block. Do you have some favorites? The newest one that I really like is in Brooklyn in uh, City Point. Mm -hmm. It's right by uh, Flatbush Avenue. Uh, It's got Junior's Cheesecake Mm. and Ample Hills Creamery and a couple of other great local restaurants. So this is the this is not a food hall uh, like you would find in an airport. These are all local restaurants and cafes. Mm -hmm. And um, every new mall that opens up in Manhattan seems to have a food court associated with it. And we're very lucky because a lot of the food trucks that we see in the streets become successful enough that they become what we call brick and mortar locations like Luke Lobster. Right. Van Leeuwen is also very popular and expanding. And we just went to Hudson Yards. We took some uh, friends from out of town there and they have a wonderful Spanish market there. And um, Hudson Yards, of course, has the vessel. Yeah. The vessel was very crowded when it first opened. It was extremely popular. It w- You needed to reserve a week or two weeks in advance to get tickets. Now you can just walk up and go. And it's wonderful because each there's uh, 50 or 60 staircases in there, and each one offers you a different vista. It's just an architectural wonder. But is it art? I, that depends on your vision and version of art. And the uh, observatory tower is going to open up the, the, that platform that we can see from most places in Manhattan is opening um, soon. There's no firm date. But that's like 100 stories above the city, and that's going to be another – pretty popular, pretty scary place to go. Yeah, it's not for those with a fear of heights because the bottom, I understand, is glass. It's glass. So getting back to food, you uh, have a page uh, 29 on Arthur Avenue, which is 
you say more authentic than Manhattan's Little Italy? Manhattan, uh, the Little Italy there has is overlapping now with Chinatown. So you will see uh, English, Chinese, and uh, and Italian right next to each other. Um, I think uh, New York Chinatown is a little bit more crowded and more uh, more touristy just mm-hmm. because it's in Manhattan. Arthur Avenue is still pretty much local. It's, it's hard to get there, though, on the subway. Uh, yeah. It's not which that is, easy. Which is part of the reason it hasn't changed that much. I mean, everything in, in the book, 100 Things to do in New York City before you die is close to public transportation because I'm a great believer in New York City public transportation. Okay, but maybe take an Uber to Arthur Avenue. I think I've done that. It's not that expensive from Manhattan. Um, So uh, the other great thing about New York is all the shopping. Yes. Are there places that you like to shop other than the stores on Fifth Avenue? (laughs) Uh, One of the, the, the... Best small chains, and it's a national chain with uh, half a dozen locations in New York, something called Buffalo Exchange. Mm. It's um, overstock merchandise and resale merchandise. So you will find recycled goods, uh, and it's really inexpensive, and they're very good at um, marketing to the community that they're in. So uh, the merchandise in Soho is different than the merchandise in Williamsburg. And I'm assuming much cheaper than but you would find cheaper. these things it's, in a department store. It's overstock. I mean, think think Nordstrom Rack, but but recycled as well as new. Okay. I think, you know, tourists looking at your book would say, you know, I want to shop and I want to eat where the New Yorkers eat. I want to know the inside stuff. The hot restaurant of the moment is Enoteca in Staten Island. It huh. is staffed only by grandmothers. Oh. So, and these are not professional chefs. These are just ladies who like to cook and who cook their own native cuisine very well. I love it. So you'll have an Italian grandmother in the kitchen one night, uh, an Azerbaijani grandmother the next <gasps> night, a Filipino the night after that. So there's there's some standard things on the menu that are there every night, but then whatever grandmother's in the kitchen, she's making her native cuisine. And this requires a reservation. This restaurant got so popular. Wow. Because it's good homemade food. And they've started cooking classes now uh, so you can learn to cook like somebody else's grandma. What's it called again? Enoteca. In Oteca. In, in Staten Island. Where is it in Staten it's Island? It's close to the ferry. You can walk wow. there from the ferry. Wow. Did not know about that. And I've lived here for a long time. It's always <laughs> fun to hear stuff like that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, Broadway. That do you, do you cover that in the book, the theater district, how yes, to maybe get discount tickets we, or... We all know about Broadway Week when you get two-for-one tickets, and that's uh, twice a year. That's in uh, coming up soon in July, and then again in February, and that was, that was marketed like Restaurant Week uh, to build clientele after the tourists go home um, in a slow season. 
Not as many people know about 20 at 20, which is the off-Broadway version of Broadway Week. And it's $20 tickets. Wow. 20 minutes before curtain. You don't need a reservation. You just show up at the box office 20 minutes before curtain. And you get $20 tickets for off-Broadway shows. Uh, but there is so much theater in New York City, and you don't have to spend a lot of money. You might not get uh, orchestra seats for the top hit show on a Saturday night. But there's so much theater for under $25 a ticket. Hmm. And, and the 20 at 20 runs about the same time as Broadway Week right? Or um, and Restaurant Week. You think, you think it's easier to get tickets in the summer? Or is it you know, harder? It, it depends on the night. Um, it's the mat. The weekends and matinee Wednesday are are the most popular. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to get a ticket on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night. My favorite trick is in the winter when it's snowing and <laughs> or really terrible weather, and I know people can't get in from the suburbs. That's when I decide at six thirty that I want to go to the theater. Right. Or get into your favorite restaurant or exactly. some, some somewhere fancy. And, um, you know, everybody wants to see Hamilton, um, but you can get a little of the history of the show in, in Upper Manhattan. Tell us about that. There are places to see Hamilton for free. Uh, he is buried in uh, Trinity Church Cemetery on in Lower Manhattan near the World Trade Center. Um, and since... Uh, the Trinity Church Cemetery is on Broadway. You can actually say that you saw <laughs> Hamilton on Broadway. Uh, Hamilton lived up in Washington Heights when when that part of town was farmland. Right. Uh, it was the weekend country escape. So Hamilton Grange uh, in Washington Heights around 155th Street is his home. It's a National Park Service uh, location. So there are free tours by park rangers. And another house that is connected with uh, Hamilton is the Morris Jumel Mansion a few blocks away, another country estate by another person. Uh, And that is believed to be haunted by uh, the widow of Stephen Jumel, for whom the mansion is named. Well, it was built by uh, the Morris family, um, and when they left, the Jumel family bought it, so the the mansion has the dual name Morris Jumel, and it's um, as it was at the time because it's hard to imagine a farmhouse uh, or a mansion. These, these were country weekend estates, so the the homes have been have been saved, uh, and there are a number of Revolutionary era buildings still in New York. I grew up on Dykeman Street right by the Dykeman House, which is the oldest revolutionary farmhouse in Manhattan. That is now a museum. It's one of the older homes operated by uh, the uh, the Historic Trust of New York City, which is different from the, the, the local version of the National Historic Trust. So another home, uh, not revolutionary, but, but from 1800s, is Edgar Allan Poe's home, on the Grand Concourse. That was in the country, in the village that was then called Fordham. And he wrote Annabelle Lee and The Raven in that house. And the original furnishings are there, and it's a very popular place on Halloween because of The Raven. But these these things are open year-round. Just in the last 30 seconds, 
Um, did you write this book more for tourists or New Yorkers or for everyone? For everyone, because everyone needs to be a tourist in New York, even if they are born and raised here. There's so much to see and do. And we think we know everything about the city, but there Always are things still to, to be discovered. <laughs> uh, Evelyn Cantor, the author of the second edition of 100 Things to Do in New York Before You Die. Thanks so much for joining us on Author Talks. Thanks, Marla. And that's what we'll close the book on this chapter. I hope you enjoyed this week's Taste in New York. Next time, we talk to Christina Alger about her new legal thriller that raises the tough question, what happens when the primary suspect is your father? Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.